Lord, it's a glorious morning. It's a morning to come and worship you and to sing your praises, to encourage one another, to delight ourselves in you. God, thank you for your words you've given us. Lord, teach us from it as we look at it this morning. Help me to teach it faithfully. Bless our worship that follows. Bless Dusty's preaching that it might be with power and with the Holy Spirit. And Lord God, renew our hearts and save the lost. And we thank you for your word in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to, st- we're going to study Psalm 103 this morning. So let me read the psalm to begin with. And there are handouts scattered throughout everywhere. So if you don't have a handout, let me know and I'll send somebody running to get you a handout. So let's, let's open our Bibles. Let's read Psalm 103. Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, praise the Lord, (laughs) nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust." As for man, his days are like grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So this is a wonderful and a glorious psalm. And many of you have studied this psalm in your various Bible studies. But you might ask, why choose Psalm 103? I mean, I taught Psalm 22 last time, and there were 149 other psalms, most of which are wonderful. But I'll tell you why I wanted to teach this psalm this morning. Because I think this psalm gives us great assurance It gives believers, and this psalm is written to believers. It's written to those who, as David will say again and again, who fear the Lord. And that in Old Testament language is believers, believers in God. So it gives us great assurance and hope 
and encouragement because we all need encouragement, right? We need encouragement in the daily struggles because we still sin and we need encouragement to know who God is and his forgiveness of our sins. It was written also by a man who was after God's heart who in fact himself knew sin deeply and knew how to repent and he knew God's forgiveness, right? So Psalm 103, it answers that question that our sins have been forgiven past, present, and future. And it declares to us without a doubt that God loves us. God loves us, those of us who are believers. He loves us with, in fact, an unbreakable covenant love, a covenant love in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. We can rest in Christ, and that's what this psalm gives us that assurance. We rest in Christ because we rest in the covenant hope and the covenant loyalty of our God and his character. So, I have a summary statement for this psalm before we dive into it. The loyal love, and we're going to talk about this because this this word loyal love is translated loving kindness uh, in most of the translations, but the loyal love and compassion of the Lord who forgives and removes the sins of frail, that's us, right, frail believers should lead them to soulful praise. And we're going to talk about soulful praise because that's what David talks about in these first two verses is soulful praise and blessed assurance. So this psalm we've talked about, there are a lot of different kinds of psalms. The last psalm I taught, 22, was a lament psalm. David was lamenting his execution, basically. That's a good thing to lament, right? But this is a thanksgiving psalm, an individual thanksgiving psalm where, where David is giving thanks to God This is, in fact, as I say here, it's a grand call to bless the Lord for his covenantal love, loyal love and compassion to believers, that is, those who fear the Lord, most significantly seen in God's forgiveness and complete removal of our sins as far as the east is from the west. And that's kind of the apex of this psalm, as we know, how high God's love is far above us in the heavens and how great is his forgiveness as far as the east is from the west. So we don't really know at what point in David's life he wrote this psalm. Did, we could speculate, did he write this after his great sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah? We don't know. David doesn't tell us. Some of the psalms in the superscription above tell us exactly what event it, it was, but we don't know. But it doesn't matter. You know, like, like us, David sinned many times throughout his life. We know some of his great sins and we'll talk about them. But David knew. David knew how to repent. We're going to talk about that in a moment. God's his epitaph on David's life. So let's just, we're kind of, many of us, maybe new believers, and, and uh, let's talk just a moment about some, just some Old Testament basics. Who, we talk about David all the time, but who was David? This is the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> who was David? King, right. He was king of what? Of Israel, that's right. When they were still the United Kingdom, right? Because later, after David died, and after Solomon, the kingdom broke up, right, because of their sins. Um, but David was king. Was he the first king of Israel? No, he was, who was the first king of Israel? Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. That's right. And David followed Saul. So what was David's profession, as you will, before he became king? Yes, he was a shepherd. He was a shepherd on the hills of Judea. And I always think, I say this again and again, I think that's where David, David built this loyal love, this 
fear of the Lord, but this great heartfelt, soul-felt love for God on the hills tending the sheep. We know that. That's where he built his, his strength and trust in the Lord because when he went to kill Goliath, you know, we know what he said. You know, when, the, when a, a lion or a bear came, the Lord delivered him, and he killed them, and he delivered the sheep. David built that trust in that kind of strong relationship with the Lord. So, okay, so what were some of the highs of David's life? I kind of mentioned one of them, right? We think about Goliath. Yeah, that was one of the big highs of David's life, I would say, because that's what God used in his ordering of events to bring David into the kingship, to bring him into recognition with Saul, right? And David demonstrated his undying, passionate love for God. How can this Philistine deny the armies of the living God? What were some of the lows in David's life? Bathsheba. That was one of the great, great lows in David's life where David, and this was not something that was just a spur-of-the-moment sin. This was calculated. It was plotted. Maybe his passionate event with Bathsheba was kind of a spur-of-the-moment passion of the flesh, but then all the events that unfolded after that, his lying, his plotting the murder of Uriah, that was over quite a period of time. That was, as they say, premeditated, right? So that was one of the lows. There were other lows in David's life. Think about the end of 2 Samuel. David numbered, he numbered the people of Israel, and the Lord was not happy with that. And the Lord sent great plague. But it's, it's interesting. Even in that scenario, David's trust came out because God gave him the options. David, this is, these are the things I can do. Your enemies run over you. We can send a plague. David said, Lord, I trust you. I trust your compassion. I know who you are. You are merciful and kind. And David chose to put himself at the mercy of God and send the plague. But that was one of the lows of David's life also. Um, so how does Psalm, speaking of Bathsheba and Uriah, how would you say that Psalm 51, let's talk about Psalm 51. What's Psalm 51? What's that famous for? His repentance, David's repentance. That's his great repentance psalm. So this is what sets David apart so much from all of the other kings that followed him. David repented. David truly repented from his heart. So Psalm 51 is that psalm which documents his great repentance before the Lord and his subsequent forgiveness before the Lord. So how do you think these might relate? Because what's the theme of Psalm 103 or one of the themes? God's compassion, God's forgiveness. I, I planted this. I, I coached her. This is my wife over here giving all these answers, right? Thank you very much. So that's right. David knew it. This psalm is a Whether he wrote this psalm before this event with Bathsheba or afterwards, David nonetheless knew the great forgiveness and compassion of the Lord. So I'd like to read this verse to you. This is 1 Kings 15, verses 3 and 4. Because we think about all these things that went on in David's life, what was the Lord's final stamp? And, and in fact, this is said again and again throughout the Kings about David. Verses 3 and 4. And this, this really talks about Jeroboam, uh, but it references David. So verse 3. And he walked, that is Jeroboam, walked in all the sins of his father, which he had committed before him. And his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God like the heart of his father David. 
But for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. Because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he had commanded him all the days of his life except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. That's God's final, that's as you were, that's what was written on David's tombstone, so to speak, is that David did what was right in the sight of the Lord except for the thing with Uriah. And David found God's forgiveness And so David can come to this psalm, again, we don't know when he wrote it, but he can write it with deep, heartfelt confidence and experience because he knew God's forgiveness. So there are some key words in this psalm um, as we dive into it here very quickly. Loving kindness is one of these important words. So this is an important Hebrew word that's used throughout the Old Testament. It's the uh, it's my Hebrew professors used to say you have to kind of spit in the back of your throat, but it's chesed. It's a very, very important Hebrew word. It means God's covenantal, loyal love. This is not just any kind of affection or any other kind of love. This is a, a word that the Lord uses with his people to mean no matter what you do, I am your God. I love you. I will deliver you. I will turn you back to me. It is therefore often translated his loyal love. God is not like us. We are not loyal. He is loyal. We know that as believers. God is loyal to us through his covenant, the new covenant, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Compassion also is another word commonly used in this psalm. So this is, and it's often found in conjunction with this word loving kindness. And it really describes God's graciousness and his mercy, his mercy that is unfailing to us as believers. It's kind of used also to speak of a father, a father, and David will use that analogy in in this psalm, a tender mercy and nourishing that a parent gives to a child. Bless is obviously a very big word in this psalm. In fact, David starts the psalm with bless. He uses it throughout the psalm. And the last words of this psalm repeat the first line, bless the Lord, O my soul. We're gonna talk just in a second about how we bless the Lord. The other words are iniquity. He uses several words for iniquities and sins and transgressions because that also is an important part of this psalm because that's how we see the great character of God in his loving kindness and forgiveness to us. So this psalm can be divided into three sections. The first five verses, David is gonna stir up gratitude within himself and he's going to extol all God's great benefits to us. Verses 6 through 18, I think, are really the heart of the psalm. We're going to talk about God's covenant love. And in the end, verses 19 through 22, there's this grand call to praise in light of everything that David has said about who God is and what he does for us. It only should resound with great praise. The whole universe should praise the Lord for what he has done for his people. So let's turn back to the psalm. I'm over in 1 Kings. I apologize. Give me a second. Verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. So how do we bless the Lord? When I was in college doing my pre-med work, one of my roommates, I used to pray that, bless the Lord, we bless you and praise you. One of my roommates, who was a godly man, looked at me and said, Craig, how do we bless the Lord? He blesses us. How do we, what does this mean that we bless the Lord? Because David tells us to do this. Paul? Obedience. obedience, that's one way, yes. And obedience blesses the Lord because it honors him, doesn't it? It's our heart that honors him. 
So anyone else? How do you bless them? Thankfulness? Yes, thankfulness. That's great. To speak of God's, what he's done for us and to give thanks to him. That blesses the Lord. But how do we, this is kind of the key, the tricky key here. How do we bless the Lord? Because when we think somebody blessing us, it means it adds something to us. It, it does something for us in essence. So how does this bless the Lord? We Oh, wonderful, wonderful, Mary. Yes, we give him credit, and we give him credit openly, visibly, audibly before the world. And when we do that, that actually enhances the name of the Lord, who he is. That enhances his reputation before the world. That's how we bless the Lord. We speak in audible, visible ways that that bring praise and glory to him, even from others around him, that let them know who he is, what he's done for us. It's very good, Mary. Excellent. Thank you. I didn't even plant her in the audience either. <laughs> so what is the significance of this phrase? Because David uses it, all that is within me. So we, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Why do you think David said that? He goes, you know, you know, just give him a little thought here and there. But no, David says, all that is within me. David is stirring up deep within his soul, right? Everything that's within him, right? Everything within him, he is trying to stir up. What God has done and what he's about to talk about deserves everything. Everything within my soul, my thoughts, my actions, everything should be stirred up to bless the Lord. I, this is a great quote from one of the Old Testament commentators. Not as opposed to mere lip service, but expressing a desire to enlist every thought, faculty, power, the heart with all its affections, the will, the conscience, the reason, in a word, the whole spiritual being, all in man that is best and highest in the same heavenly service. So David is saying, everything within my spirit, everything should give praise to the Lord for his benefits that he's going to describe. And what is the object of this? Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, Bless his, what does he say? What are the two words? I'm sorry? Holy name. That's right. We talked about this a little bit when I taught Psalm 22. But to say that God is holy means what? What does that mean? Yes, that's right, Tim. He is set apart from us. And I, I made the comment that if you want to think about it simplistically is that he is not like us. He is not like us in any way. In any way that we think we are good or perfect, he is perfect, right? He is far beyond us. He is not like us. He is set apart. Great. And name, we talked about this too because the word name, it's the Hebrew word Shem. It's used throughout the Old Testament to speak of God's, in fact, the, the famous phrase in the, in the Old Testament is Baruch Hashem, blessed be the name. So, what does his name represent? The name of the Lord is used again and again. It's not like just the name Morris, right? 
the name Michael or anything else, right? Or Edwards, you know, it's God's name means what? I'm, I'm probably making this question a little more difficult, but I'm thinking about his character. When they say the name of the Lord, his holy name, name means everything that he is. His character, his reputation, everything that God is. So David is saying, bless his holy name. Who he is, his character, his reputation. Because his character and his reputation are going to become a huge part of this psalm as we talk about God's compassionate love. So David then goes on to encourage us, to extol us, to forget none of his benefits. So what are benefits? I mean, I know we have them at work, but like insurance and everything else, but what are, what are benefits? What are God's benefits to us? <laughs> well, we do have insurance. We have assurance, that's right, of our salvation. Our daily provisions, that's right. God's acts of continual kindness and mercy to us. That's good. Anyone else? Peace. Peace, yeah, those are some of his benefits. Well, let's talk about this. But before we talk about the list of God's benefits, David says, forget not. And why would David, right out of the gate, say, forget not his benefits? We are humans, that's exactly right. And what do we do because we're humans? We forget, that's right. And forgetting, in forgetting God's benefits, how does that play out in our lives practically? It does, because we separate ourselves from God, isn't it? When we forget God and who he is and his benefits, we walk as though there is no God, right? That's the issue here. If we forget who he is, we just walk in the flesh, right? We walk as human beings. But David says, don't do that. In fact, the Hebrew phrase that he uses here means exactly that. If you think about the Old Testament, many times God's, the Old Testament will record, particularly in Deuteronomy and through the wanderings of the children of Israel and then through all the kings, they forgot the Lord their God. And that doesn't mean they just had a lapse of memory. It means that they walked in disobedience. That means they walked in the flesh, they followed the Baals, they followed all the pagan gods all around them. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy 6.12 is a good verse here. Then watch yourself lest you forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery, and that's sadly what they did. You know, if we don't forget the Lord, if we remember who the Lord is, what that means is that we walk in faith, right? So when we remember the Lord and all his benefits and who he is, we walk in faith. And I think of the great passage in 1 Corinthians 15. It's a good example of this. Paul talks about, you know, we, we hear this at funerals, right? But we should walk in this all the time. But it's God's, it's Paul's great description of the resurrection and the second coming of Christ and all of the things that flow out of that. And Paul ends that verse, ends that chapter with verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. 
So for us as believers, if we remember the Lord, if we remember who he is and not forget him, this is the kind of way we'll walk. We'll be steadfast, we'll be immovable, always abounding in the works of the Lord. So let's talk about these benefits because David now is going to just number these benefits or or list them out for us in verses three through five. Verse three, who pardons all your iniquities. So why would David, first off, what are our iniquities? Sins, right, and God pardons, that is he forgives iniquities. So why do you think David started with this one to begin with? That's exactly right. So Drew said, you can't have a relationship with God without forgiveness. So without that one to begin with, nothing else matters. Nothing else applies, right? If you don't have pardon with God, and we say now in the new covenant through our Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't know our Lord Jesus Christ and have salvation through him, nothing else matters because nothing else, in fact, applies to you. Uh, That's the capstone, forgiveness of our sins. And again, David knew that in his life, didn't he? He knew that forgiveness and relationship with God was number one because everything else flowed out of that. So then 3B, and this is the tough one, who heals all your diseases. So I'm a doctor. God doesn't heal all diseases. People die. I see death and destruction every week. I see it in babies to, to young adults all the time. God doesn't heal all of our diseases. So how do we understand this phrase of David? I mean, some people, I think, misappropriate this verse to say that God should just heal us. We name it and claim it, and we have our healing service, and God should just heal us. How, how do we understand this phrase? Oh, sorry, Frank? Talk about sin? Yeah. That, that's Great. Because in the Old Testament, and you're on to it, Frank, in the Old Testament, disease and sin were frequently associated, right? So I think, I didn't pay you either, but I really appreciate your answer. (laughs) This is a tough one. Um, We have to look at the context that David wrote in and the history that David was talking about and the history that David was thinking about. In fact, David in verses six through eight is gonna talk about the children of Israel and Egypt and Moses. So David, I think, is looking back at the history of the nation Israel and how God dealt with them. And sin and disease are frequently associated together in the Old Testament. Um, And there are, we don't have time to read them all, but there are many passages, for example, in Leviticus, where the Lord tells them, you know, if you obey my covenant, if you walk with me, none of these diseases that I put on the, on the nation of Egypt, for example, I will put on you. And, but God also, in many passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, tells them, if you do not walk in my ways, these things will come upon you. So God often inflicted plagues upon the children, you know, as they walked in the wilderness, as they disobeyed him. So frequently, sin was associated with diseases, but the contrast is also true. When there was repentance, God lifted the plagues. Again, think about David numbering the children of Israel. God lifted the plague when there is repentance. So I think this is the context that David is talking about is those who walk with God, who walk in covenant obedience with him, God heals their diseases. 
It's also interesting as we look into the New Testament and think about this, and we don't really have a lot of time to delve into this this morning, but, but Jesus healed many people, didn't he? He didn't heal everyone, but he healed many, many, many people. And often it was associated with his power to forgive. The Pharisees would question him when he would heal a paralytic. Now, how do you have power to forgive sins? And he would say, to show you, he would heal the paralytic and the paralytic would rise and walk. So often it was associated. But again, there were other times in the New Testament where, for example, Jesus healed the blind man and his disciples would say to him, who sinned, his parents or this man? And Jesus said, nobody sinned. But this is that the power of God might be manifest. So I think we have to understand that in this context is... Sometimes perhaps there is something going on spiritually in our lives, but most of the time not. Most of the time this is part of God's providence for us as believers, often to help us know his grace and his mercy and to trust in him. And I think as believers too, we know that ultimately we'll be healed in heaven, right? That's when all of this will be taken away. There will be no more death. There will be no sickness or sorrow, but God will take it all away in heaven. So, that's the tough one, healing all our diseases. But I think we understand that again in the context that David is talking about, associated with sin, but also associated with repentance throughout the history of the nation of Israel. Redemption from destruction, who redeems your life from the pit. That is the word shul, that means destruction. That can mean eternal destruction. And this also is one of our great hopes as believers, isn't it? That God redeems us from that eternal death that we deserve. He redeems us from destruction. And David goes on to say, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. This is just a beautiful illustration. Some people say maybe David was thinking a crown that he just surrounds us like a crown with God's loving kindness and compassion. Others say that maybe this is the illustration that God just prepares us to be kings and priests with him, that he crowns us with this great, again, this is that great word, his, his loyal love and compassion. And then he goes on to say, who satisfies your years with good things. So the satisfies your years could also be translated mouth, actually. Who satisfies your mouth with good things. That is, God provides abundantly for us the things that we need so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. And this is that illustration of the eagle that we commonly see in the Old Testament. What's a, what's a famous passage that comes to mind when we think about the eagle? Yes, from Isaiah, yes, that we soar like eagles. Eagles are majestic birds, aren't they? We just, I remember sitting in a hunting stand in New Mexico one time and seeing a golden eagle land in the pond near where I was hunting. And they're just majestic birds, but they soar with great power and might. And that's, that's just the illustration that David gives us, that God renews us, that we can soar like eagles above this earth and above all the infirmities of this world. So now we're going to come to verses 6 through 8 because God, David lists all of God's benefits to him and now he's going to look back at God's specific compassion and mercy and he's going to start with history of the nation of Israel. Verse 6, the Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. So with respect to oppression and injustice 
and the nation of Israel, what could David be thinking about? When was a time that the nation of Israel was suffering great oppression and injustice? There were multiple times, but... Okay, that would have been after David's time, so David wouldn't have been talking about this, but you're right, absolutely right, when they were in, in captivity and Egypt. Egypt, that's exactly what David was thinking about in this, in this scenario. So again, just a little Old Testament history for those of us who are maybe new in the faith. So the children of Israel were in Egypt because of God's providence, right? Because Joseph was sold into slavery, right, in, in Egypt. And then Joseph, by God's providence, rose to become second in command behind Pharaoh, basically. God prospered Joseph, didn't he? And then come Jacob and all of Joseph's brothers into Egypt. And God built a mighty nation in the land of Goshen out of the nation Israel, didn't he? But as things would happen, the Pharaohs who knew Joseph died, right? And then come along a Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph or remember Joseph. And they oppressed. They were jealous of the nation Israel and they oppressed Israel and they put them in slavery and into forced labor and they cried out to God in their oppression but God in his mercy and his just and his graciousness raised up who? Who Moses. God raised up Moses to deliver the nation Israel and that is what David is speaking about. Again this is God's compassionate covenantal love because if you remember back Prior in Genesis, God had made covenants with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and promised that he would not withdraw his covenant love from them. And God is faithful to these covenants. So God delivers the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, right? He delivers them through the great parting of the Red Sea. He destroys the mightiest army on the face of the earth before the nation Israel. He shows them his power. He showed them his power again and again in Egypt, right, through all the plagues, how he delivered them and sent plague after plague after plague on the nation Israel. But there's a sad story, right, because they come into, after they've been delivered across the Red Sea, they come out into the wilderness and immediately they begin to sin, right? They immediately begin to sin. And Moses, in fact, goes up on the mountain and he receives the Ten Commandments. And what happens while Moses is up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments? That's right. They're building an idol. Yeah, they're building an idol. And Aaron is helping them, right? The priest is helping them. This is so sad, isn't it? How quickly they forget God. Let's come back to that word David said. Forget not all his benefits. God just delivered them. He just parted the Red Sea and destroyed Pharaoh and his army. I mean, how could you forget the Lord? But this is why we say forgetting means more than just a lapse of memory. They built idols and they had immoral situations going on with those idols. And God told Moses as Moses comes down off the mountain. So what does Moses do? He throws the Ten Commandments down and they break the Ten Commandments. And, and uh, God tells Moses, I'll destroy these people, I'll build you a nation. And Moses did what? He pleaded for the people, right? So all of this has happened and it brings us to this great story that David is going to basically quote in verse eight about God's character. In light of all of this, in light of all the unfaithfulness of Israel, they're walking against the Lord. All of this, nonetheless, 
God is merciful and compassionate to sinners, isn't he? I, I love Exodus 33:13. Moses said to God, let me know thy ways that I may know thee so that I may find favor in thy sight. Consider too that this nation is thy people. So Moses is pleading with God for the preservation of the people. And then God reveals himself to Moses. And this is so telling of the character of our God, the character of our God for sinners, the compassionate, loyal love of our God. And so this is why David brings this into this Psalm. Exodus 34, verses six and seven. And again, you know that story that, that the Lord said he would show himself to Moses, but he would cover him with his hand. He would hide him in the cleft of the rock. You cannot see my face, Moses, but I'll show you my back parts. So when God is showing himself to Moses as who he is, I mean, this is the Lord God who's saying, this is who I am, Moses. This is the core of who I am. Exodus 34, verses six and seven. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. That's that word chesed, abounding in covenant loyal love. God remembers all his covenants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the whole nation, abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the children, grandchildren to the third and the fourth generations. So when we come to verse eight, David is in essence quoting this verse. This is, the, this is who God is. This is God's history with the nation Israel. Verse eight, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. So he points them right back. Remember what the Lord said to Moses on the mount in the face of all this wickedness going on in the nation, in the face of idolatry and absolute abandonment of God when he had just done all of this for us, right? David says, this is who God is. So that sets the stage for the heart of the Psalm in verses nine through 12. Verse nine, he, that is the Lord, will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. So when David says in this verse, he does not, he will not always strive with us. The language he is using is like a courtroom in essence. The Hebrew word is like a courtroom that God will not contest with us like a trial attorney who is pleading his case that you should sentence this man to death. God is not like that. He will not contest with us. In fact, we know from the New Testament, God is our judge. Not only is God our judge, but he has provided the propitiation. God himself has provided the answer. Turn to Romans 8. Verses 33 and 34. This passage is such great comfort to us as believers. Romans 8, 33. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? 
God is the one who justifies. God himself justifies. He is judge, but not only is he the judge, he has provided his son as the sacrifice for us, so he justifies. Can you imagine that as a judge who says, you deserve death, but I'll go to the death chamber for you. That is an essence. God has done that through the work of Jesus Christ. He has sent his son to die for us, and that's what Paul is saying is, is, God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, the Son of God. Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. So this is so rich for us who live this side of the cross of Jesus Christ. We know that God will not contest with us or be angry with us forever because he has provided us the sacrifice for us as the judge. He has provided the perfect sacrifice, right? The perfect sacrifice which satisfies the sentence. And what's the sentence that we deserve? Death. And not just death, eternal hell, eternal punishment. And even that cannot satisfy the wrath of God, eternal punishment, but that's what we deserve is God's eternal punishment. So Sin must provoke God's anger, right? Because sin is the opposite of God. Sin is absolutely contrary to his character, to who God is. So sin must always provoke his anger because it is absolute rebellion and rejection of him. That is why God is angry with sins. That's why God's wrath does come upon sins because it is total rejection. But again, the Lord has provided that sacrifice. And then we come to what I think are the great verses. These are, if you're, if you're a mountain climber, this is peaking the mountain. This is putting your hand on the medallion at 14,000 feet, right? This is the peak of this psalm. And this is what I love about this psalm. This is why I wanted to teach this psalm. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. So what is David saying in verse 11? How high are the heavens above the earth? Is it measurable? Let me ask you this. We just, we, the government, just shot what, years ago, a telescope up into space, or however long ago they sent it up there. We're just taking pictures. We, we, we can't even see the back room. We don't even know how far the heavens are. You, you, I, I always love this. I love this in medicine. My field is, my, people, people think they are so smart because they can understand DNA, and I always say, you're just understanding the map. You didn't create it. And you don't even understand everything about DNA. That's all we're doing. We're taking pictures of all of this. And our, at the height of our intelligence and our technology, we can't even send telescopes up to see, <laughs> to see how far it is. It is infinite. And David didn't have the web telescope, right? But David knew. David knew because he had been out on those mountains in Judea, right, with his sheep. He knew the heavens and the Milky Way were incalculably high above him. So how is David relating that to God's love? How great is God's love? Immeasurable, that's the word, that's the word. It's immeasurable, 
the height. His love is immeasurable. It is immeasurable because it is infinite. It is infinite. It has no end. There is no end to the depths of, and the heights of God's love. And again, this reminds me of Romans 8, you know, that great ending of that passage, Romans 8, 38 and 39. We won't go there, but it reminds me of that, the incalculable depth and height and breadth of God's love. And David says, that's not just an abstract concept. It's not just an abstract concept that God loves us, but God's love acts. And how does God's love act for us? Verse 12, what does God do for us? He removes our sins. That's exactly right. God's love acts for his people in removing our sins. So if God's love is infinitely immeasurable, infinitely high, how great is God's forgiveness for us? Immeasurable. It is immeasurable. As David uses the horizontal, he uses the vertical to talk of God, which is appropriate. The horizontal to talk of us. But as we can't even, you could go a thousand miles that way and you could still say, I'm going east, right? Or you could go a thousand miles the other way and say, well, I'm still going west. There is no, there is no end point, right, in essence. That's what David is saying is, this is God's love for us. It is immeasurable. It is incalculable. And he gives this great love to us. Isn't this great? Isn't this this to me is the height of the psalm. This is, this is the glory of this psalm that we can rest in this. Brothers and sisters, if you know Christ, if you know, as David says, you fear him, you are forgiven. God has forgiven you because he has set forth his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this is how David was saved. It is all through the work of Jesus Christ. Romans 3, verses 25 and 26 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. Propitiation was necessary because sins provoked anger. God was angry with sin. It had to be dealt with and the price had to be paid. But who provided the propitiation? Jesus. The Son of God provided the propitiation. So that's the glory here. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. That's the sins of David, right? That's the sins of Joseph. That's the sins of all the believers before. He passed over them in his forbearance because Christ was coming. And Christ would pay for all those sins with Bathsheba and Uriah and everything. Everything through the blood of Jesus Christ. He passed over those sins and demonstrated his righteousness to us. That's the hope we have, brothers and sisters. I love this quote. This is from Alan Ross, who was one of my Hebrew professors. No matter what we do, we know that the faithful love of God will forgive and restore us. His word guarantees this because of his nature to forgive. And according to verse 12, in forgiving us, God completely removes our sins as far as the east is from the west. And we have that great promise in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He is faithful. He will do this. Just think of everything we've been saying about God's covenant love and loyalty to us as believers. This is, to me, the message we take home from this psalm is that God has forgiven us. We walk in his love we walk in his forgiveness and 
God is not angry with us because he's propitiated our sins through Jesus Christ. We sin, we come to him and tell him, and he forgives. He forgives, he will always forgive. Okay, verses 13 through 18, as we're running towards the end of this hour now. Verses 13 through 18, Paul, uh, basically David is going to tell us that God does all of this in frail and weak believers. That is us who are in human flesh. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. As for man, his days are like grass. As a flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the wind has passed over it, it is no more, and its place acknowledges it no longer. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who, hope, who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children, to those who keep his covenant and who remember his precepts to do them. So this is the other great compassion and message that David teaches us in this psalm is that God pours out all this mercy and love and grace into vessels of clay, right? We are just like pottery. We're like clay. We are very weak. In fact, we are the dust of the earth. David is referring back to Genesis, right? God made us out of the dust. And in fact, David says, God knows that. God knows how weak you are. God knows how you struggle on a daily basis with maybe physical ailments or with certain sins that plague you. God knows this because he made you. He redeemed you. He knows who you are. In fact, we're like grass. In fact, we're not even immortal in this life, right? We're immortal in heaven, but we're like the grass. And isn't it humbling? David basically says the grass blows away and withers. And in fact, if you look in the dirt, nobody even remembers where it was planted. You don't even see it. We kind of know that right now, don't we? When everything is dying and everything is passing away. Um, God knows that though. God knows that. And yet he pours all of this into our lives, into our lives who are weak and frail as the dust of the earth from whence he made us and the grass of the fields that passes away. Isn't it special that our Lord Jesus used this analogy many times, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount about the grass of the fields that, that God knows the grass of the field and we're of greater value than that. We're of greater value than all of that. But that's comfort for us is God knows your weaknesses. God knows you because he made you. So let's end this psalm in verses 19 through 22. In light of all of this, David says, there has to be a grand praise and celebration to our God. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. That's why God can do all of this, right? That's why God can save you because he is sovereign, because he rules over all the heavens and the earth, because he is the creator. Therefore, he is the redeemer and he can do all of these things. Bless the Lord, you his mighty angels, mighty in strength who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts who serve him, doing his will. So the hosts, I, I take that also just to be a, the angels. In Hebrew, in the poetry, often they'll say one line, the next line kind of reiterates it and expands a little bit on it, but the hosts are also the angels. Think about Luke 2, when the birth of our Lord Jesus was announced to the shepherds in the field, we saw the hosts of heaven shouting, glory to God, 
Glory to God in the highest. That's the hosts of heaven. They're there. They're all around us. They're there. And David says, even the hosts of heaven, the angels, should praise and bless God as the angels did announcing the birth of Jesus because of his great redemption, his great love and covenant love for us. Bless the Lord, all you works of his. That is creation. All creation, all creation should bless the Lord for his saving love for us. And he ends the psalm with the same phrase he started with, bless the Lord, O my soul. So in just a couple of minutes, some applications of this great psalm. So first, God's covenant, loyal love and compassion came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ. That is the most marvelous thing that ever happened in history. God had promised all of this to the Israel, the nation of Israel, all the covenants, but the ultimate fulfillment was in the new covenant, in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That is the grand gift of God to us in, in our life, is that Jesus Christ came to us. To those who believe in him, our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, and God remembers those no more. God doesn't remember when you were not a believer and, you came and you've now come to Jesus Christ. Those sins that may plague your heart and mind and soul, God has forgiven those things. Walk in love and faith and holiness with him because they're gone. God doesn't remember them. He doesn't remember all the bad things you did, the bad thoughts you had, and all those things. You walk in faith and confidence with him. We rest in Christ. This is Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, I think, where Jesus said, we can turn there quickly, and I'll just read this. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my load is light. Our load is light. We've given our burden to him, and Jesus carries our burden because he carried it on the cross for us. And we give praise and bless his name because of the work of Jesus Christ. God's forgiveness in Christ is everlasting. It's in a new covenant in his blood. We won't read Romans 8. But Romans 8, 1 through 3, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. How great it is. We know Christ in the cross. David didn't know Christ in the cross yet. We know him and we stand in light of the cross. This is God's loving kindness in the covenant blood of his son. And this should also spur us to love and good works. Hebrews 13, it should spur us. Knowing what we have and who we are in Christ should spur us to service to loving one another, to sharing the gospel, to blessing God's name before others. And this psalm also teaches us, understand about the nature of your God, understand about his loyal love and compassion and forgiveness. This is who he is, and as a believer, he loves you, and he has that loyal compassion and forgiveness for you. Well, we're done. What a wonderful psalm. I'm sorry to close out the study of the psalms this summer because they're wonderful. Read the psalms, meditate on them, make them part of your daily time in the scripture. The psalms are full of, as Spurgeon, the great preacher said, they are the treasury of David. More than just David, but they are the treasury of David. Let's pray and then we're, we're done. Lord, we thank you for the privilege 
of opening the word and studying it. Oh God, may these infinite truths, oh God, about your love and compassion to us, give us hope and comfort day by day in our struggles with sin and our struggles to know you. And oh God, give us hope and compassion and comfort. And we thank you for what you've done for us. And bless the teaching and preaching of the word now as we go into worship and into fellowship. In Christ's name, amen.